Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. <laughs> Gone with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. So I ask you, <laughs> is Tommy indeed a hero, or was he someone playing those who supported him? Oh, that poor kid. Here, let's help him. When in reality he was never what he said they were. Class is it. This is the Rock School Radio Show on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns, and sorry, Tammy is not with us again, so you know what that means. We have another interview. This week, I'm speaking with Dewar McLeod about his book, Tommy, Trauma and Post-War Youth Culture. I found it a wonderful read. I really enjoyed it. And it's a jumping off point for many music and societal discussions, which you'll hear during the interview. Plus, let's be honest, I could talk about the who all day long. So, for an hour, it's Dewar McLeod and Tommy on Rock School. On the phone with me is Dewar McLeod, the author of Tommy, Trauma, and Post-War Youth Culture. It's a small book, less than 100 pages, but I got to tell you, it was thick, and it was it was two sittings of real enjoyment because I love the album Tommy, but I have questions. Dewar, welcome to the show. Oh, so great to be here. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Looking hey, ex- forward to explain, digging into it with you. Explain yourself, young man. You're an academic, are you not? <laughs> I am a, uh, no longer a young man, but still young at heart and all of that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a professor of history at William Patterson University in New Jersey. I teach U.S. history, world history, uh, pop culture, American culture, some U.S. foreign policy, lots of fun stuff. And I've written all my books have been about popular music, but consider myself a cultural historian. So my first book was about punk rock in Southern California. And I looked at it in the, in the suburbanization of that region. And I wrote a book about New Jersey's music scenes. And I'm really interested in how people enjoy music, you know, usually with others, you know, they create and enjoy music with others. And then this one about Tommy is the first time I'm really digging into one one document, if you will, one artifact and the whole story around it and situating it within, you know, post-war youth culture, but bringing this element of trauma into it. And it's also the first one where I really bring my own personal relationship to the forefront. Well, I think that's what music is. It is from the get-go, a personal relationship. And I want to start where you started in the book. You attempted to get an interview or at least some support from Pete Townsend and you failed and you <laughs> yeah your writing suggested that you turn that into a positive you you received an email directly from Pete Townsend right 
Yeah, so uh, I had a mutual friend who was glad to connect me, which is really nice, someone who's known Pete for uh, 40 years or so. And um, he connected me with Pete's assistant, who's you know been working for him for many, many years. She responded very quickly saying, Pete's not doing any uh, any of the stuff, <clears throat> you know, the uh, music stuff. He's on sabbatical, she said. And then the next day he responded and said, um, I want nothing to do with this. <laughs> and so wow. I was like, wow, yeah. <laughs> and actually I showed it to my friend and he's like, he just laughed. He's like, yeah, I've seen that side of Pete, you know. But I also see the generosity of engagement. He didn't have to send me anything. You know, he didn't have to say anything. I, you know, uh, far less famous people than he have uh, just not responded, right? That's how most of us deal with these things. So I did appreciate that engagement. And and I used it as a hook into sort of the theme of the album for me, which is, you know, this, you know as, as I experienced the story, which is, you know, it starts with the parent saying, you didn't see, hear it, you didn't see, you won't say nothing to no one, never in your life. Not a word of it. And so and here is Pete enacting that with me. And it, it's a hook into how I experienced the album when I first started hearing it. It came out when I was seven years old. And um, it was the first album I ever bought with my own money. And I lived inside that album for years. And, uh, you know, it's I didn't live Tommy's story, but I felt that connection in, as a child myself. Uh, and so that's the hook into into the, my analysis of, of the album and then the movie and then the musical. I'd be honest with you, if he had sent me back a yay or an A, obviously he sent you a nay, I would have framed that and put it up on my wall, the fact that Pete Townsend knew who I was even for half a second. Well, I started a book with it, so yeah. There <laughs> so, you go. Um, yeah. I literally wanted them to be able to print it in the blue font that, you know, they... Uh, that it came in in my email. Um, maybe I should have tried to you know, post it as a photo of that email. Look, I'm a fan of the album. I know the album quite well. You mentioned the Who Sell Out. That is, without a doubt, my favorite Who album. So we'll get to that. But the thing about Tommy, it is an attempt. Do you, I, and I want to ask you this, do you believe the attempt was from the beginning to create a rock opera or was it an album that got away from Pete Townsend and he decided then to sort of turn it into a cohesive story rather than a series of songs? Um, I think there's no doubt in my mind that it was uh, framed as a rock opera before, you know, from the get-go. And I actually think one of the things I, I, that my contribution into, you know, there's a lot been written about this, is I really pay attention to tracking Pete's every move and every word um, throughout this process. And one of the things I came to love Pete because he really engages with the public and he's really excited to, even if he is irascible and, and, you know, a little sharp elbowed at times and all of this. And so there's a historical record of, you know, there's a famous interview of him staying up all night with John Leonard of Rolling Stone and talking about the rock opera 
before he's even written it. You know, he's written parts of it. And so he later said that he felt constrained once that was published as a two-part interview, um, that he kind of had to follow what he what he promised, but, you know. But so while he's creating, he's sharing this stuff with the public, with other people, and there's other documents that he publishes later. And so Kit Lambert, the producer, his he produced the album, and it's, it's often not praised for the production of the album. And I, I don't really get into that, but he definitely understood, like, you should be doing something more. And he encouraged him to do something. He came from his own sort of more classical music background. And even in Who Sell Out, right, you see the prototypes really, even some of the riffs are in there and uh, uh, some of the experiments of what Pete's, uh, you know, Real parts one and two and, um, you know, Pete's experimenting with trying to expand the form. And, and, and a lot of the musical artists of that decade really were late 60s, right? You know, we already had Sgt. Pepper. Uh, Sgt. Pepper tells everybody, you got to up your game. You know, there's more going on here and everybody grabs at it and is thrilled to in a way. And so this is how he, you know, he does it in his own particular way. So absolutely, this was intended. It's now it's all cobbled together in, in the studio. Um, this Pinball Wizard, I think, is released before the album's even done. Like, so there's a hodgepodge to it, um, definitely. But, uh, uh, you know, nonetheless, um, you know, it was envisioned as something like a rock opera from the start. Here's my big argument when I talk to people about Tommy. Here's what I think, and I don't know why, but Tommy the Musical, Tommy the Album, is on the same brain cell as the movie Memento. He was never deaf, dumb, and blind. It was a ploy to protect himself, and at the end, when the mirror breaks, he was never cured. He simply admitted it. So, I ask you... <laughs> Is Tommy indeed a hero, or was he someone playing those who supported him? Oh, that poor kid, here, let's help him, when in reality he was never what he said they were. Joe, you're a, you're a hard man, man. Yeah, you that. bet. Uh, Stand and, back. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, one other thing is that like, I really focus on, because... Of my background, this is why I put my own. I, I put myself in this book to show where I'm coming from, and didn't want to overload with uh, my story, but the connection. But it makes me much more sympathetic to, you know, as I say, I, I was living side one, and the whole second part. Once he's healed and becomes a guru, I'm, you know, I talk about that, and it is fascinating, but I don't connect to that. And really, Pete's audience at the time, you know, he performed this at Woodstock, and. Um, you know, the Pete's audience is, is the Woodstock. And I was, you know, seven, I turned seven, right. I think right at that weekend when, when Woodstock is happening. So, um, uh, Pete's audience is really connected to, and I think he's really connected to at the moment it comes out to what does this mean to be a rock star? And so there's lots of interesting, I think that's fascinating because he's looking and he talks about looking at it at Woodstock and it's a nightmare for him. I mean, he gets ghosts from LSD and then, um, you know, he's looking out and already feeling like, you know, we're becoming this kind of consumer product to feed back to our audience something, the role of the Messiah. And he's already wrestling with that while he's also at Woodstock behaving like a total <laughs> And the reason there's no footage from this 
is the the video the film crew was told step back don't get don't don't get out there because he's he's impossible he'd already pushed somebody famously abby hoffman uh jumps on stage and speaks into the microphone about john sinclair's arrest and pete like bayonets him with his guitar and stuff so so that's what i think a lot of people talk about that if your child ain't all he should be now this girl could put him right i'll show him what he could be now to tear your soul apart. i'll give you another question that I have always looked at and and look I was born in 64 so I was five years old when Woodstock happened I love when my students I'm an academic you're an academic I love when my students ask me how Woodstock was and I said well I was five years old so obviously all my needs were taken care of but I'll, I'll ask you a question that I, I, I my parents have asked me multiple times Generations have been coming of age for millennia. What makes the 1960s generation all that much more important? Is it because they could be recorded? Why is that generation of age so well ingrained in our minds? That's what I take from Tommy. We're coming of age. Well, so what? So has everybody else. Right. Great. No, really good um, uh, question. And I want to attack it from a couple different ways. One is, you know, in the 20th century, we've already started to see this concept of youth culture, teenagers coming of age, you know, starting in the even in the teens with the sort of Greenwich Village set and then the 20s, the flapper generation. So even in the 30s, you start to, you know, you, you, the youth on the road. And I'm doing some earlier research right now in the 40s and the Bobby Sox group with Frank Sinatra. So this sense of that there's these people called teenagers are different and it's a stage of life. And in all of these cases, it kind of coheres around culture. Um, and, you know, it's not everybody. And what happens after the Second World War, this because of the baby boom, which is people really born between 1940 and, you know, officially, I think people say goes to 64, but... You and I could talk later about this, but I was born in 62. I never felt officially, someone just told me today, they, they call us Boomer X. That's her name from it, from a fellow historian. And like, we're not really very influenced by that, but not part of it, you know, in that same way. Um, but, you know, so just numbers and the maturation of this global consumer culture, that the global economy is driven by people buying disposable products and pop culture is creates tremendous disposable products uh and so this is global it's certainly transatlantic already by by the time they come of age so you know the american and the british uh experiences are really different at you know like read keith richard's autobiography he's still walking through a black and white world but the landscape still shows signs of the second world war you know and um that you know that's what they're all born in uh the who is all born at the sort of right at the end of the war um and then hold that whole like musical generation a lot of them right at the end of the war and immediately after um so it's simply numbers and it's simply economics you could say uh but that creates a group of people who consider themselves as agents of history and the pop culture industry cannot uh you know cannot let go of them 
you know, what's better than watching some hippies walk down the hate Ashbury? You're going to sell magazines. You're going to sell news reports, whether you embrace it or whether you reject it, right? Oh, my God, this the world is coming to an end. That's a great Life Magazine photo, photo essay. Oh, my God, you know, the world is liberated. That's a great uh, television show or something like this. And then you got to feed them products. So you get the monkeys and you get, you know, CBS Records saying the famous ad, you know, something about, you know, stick it to the man by buying our corporate product and stuff. Right. I want to, I, I know I've been going on, but I want to, I want to do one other angle. We may have the sixties all wrong. And we, you know, in 20 years, they may be teaching the sixties as this was when people like Carl Rove and George W. Bush and Donald Trump were all in college. And some of them like Rove and Lee Atwater and, and the corporate Republicans that become the leadership of the Republicans, they were all, um, avoiding the Vietnam War, but also um, targeting ways to work their way into power. You know, the story is Goldwater was too extreme. He was he, he lost, and then we have JFK, and we have LBJ, and then we have civil rights in Vietnam War, and the Beatles, and Stones, and Dylan, and all that good stuff. Well, we actually see the, the, the seeds are being set for the rise of the new right. And those people were all in the 60s, too, and they weren't participating. They weren't at Woodstock. Uh, but they may be more than even Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman and, and Joan Baez and all the people we could say, they may last longer in the history books. You know, that's, that's part of history is always sort of, you know, we, the evidence for the, the baby boomers and the youth culture is so prevalent because it's all in the magazines. Uh, but as we dig deeper, we may notice, yeah, that was there and that did affect our world, but other things were going on that work on the on the time magazine and in the tv shows and such that actually maybe maybe in the long run had more effect oh i absolutely agree time to take our first break but we'll be back to continue talking with Dewar mcleod about his new book tommy trauma and post-war youth culture on rock school <laughs> And I, I'll be honest with you. You mentioned it. The 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 movie. Or pardon me. The album. The Who sell out. This idea that commercialism was taking over. You said we're all going to buy these disposable products. Agreed. So what you have is the Who sitting in a vat of baked beans that came in a can. Right. I have right. tried to play. Uh, on my radio show, which you're on right now, the the concern is that a lot of our uh, our affiliates are non-commercial. Well, the question is, could I play the fake commercials that were inside <laughs> yeah. of this yeah. album? Yeah, the Who Sell Out to me is a better commentary on society than Tommy had ever been. Yay or nay? Oh, definitely. I'm, I I disagree. But more than that, it's really more a matter of taste. Like, the Who Sell Out doesn't do it for me. I know a lot of people do. I find, um, you know, some of that sophomoric. And, and I admit, it's just very personal. I will say, like, what I heard before, I, I must have heard, like, my generation, all that. I can see for miles was something I remember hearing on, you know, I moved to L.A. and they had the great KHJ radio station. And I would hear that, and that's maybe the perfect Who song and the best Who song ever. And 
And um, so I never really, really tapped into, I, I felt like the Who did a lot of novelty songs and, and um, you know, that just, that's really a matter of taste. Like I can't argue with you one's more important or not, but I just want to add to what I was saying before, because I think one thing that was distinctive about that is there was something called mass culture that pretty much everybody was participating in. Like it's skewed. It's not everybody certain, like, it's not targeted maybe by gender, by race, by age, you know, some are excluded, but pretty much everybody has access. So there is this kind of universal culture in a way that all young people have access to. And again, I don't want to say it's a hundred percent, but um, when Be- you know, Beach Boys pet sounds come out, anybody who's paying attention to music is hearing that. And I've always wanted to write about AM radio at that decade because it is truly the most integrated musical. I, I, I'm, I'm speculating. I shouldn't say it as a fact. And maybe some of your listeners can argue, you know, set me straight. But that it's an integrated musical scene in the way so much of our musical history has not been and still is not. And so that's fascinating to me that you're hearing, you know, the Motown and the, the Philly stuff. And then you're hearing the Beatles and the Beach Boys and, and all of this. And so... And they're all listening to each other. They're all feeding off each other. And I think Pete really loves that. Like he he's mocking pop culture, but he is a pop artist and he sees himself as an artist, but also he, he wants to make money, but he wants to speak to the people. And so I do think like the who sell again, it just doesn't tickle me, but I get it that a lot, a lot of people, and maybe it's just that it didn't, I didn't really hear it until later or whatever it is. But, uh, um, you know, he's, he's in that. And, and I, if you want to say, Tommy never spoke to you, I get that, right? I think that perspective is really important. And I write about the musical when it comes around in the 90s, which I think is a great window into how these baby boomers now aged so old because they're in their 40s, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, I laugh because, you know, 40s used to sound old to me too, but doesn't anymore. Um, and they're looking back and some of them embrace the musical and say, finally, someone has spoken really for our generation to a true mass audience, Broadway, blah, blah, blah. Others are like, what the hell is this? This is not rock and roll. Thank this you. Is not the who. This is not what the Woodstock generation is about. This is a, yeah. uh, you know, this is schmaltz. This is like a Vegas style appropriation of something that used to mean a lot. <laughs> leads me to another point. I'm an academic. I'm a professor. You're a professor. Is the vast majority of what we talk about in terms of the 60s and the who specifically, is it really what they were discussing or is this all stuff that was laid across them by an academic because there was a paper to be written? What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I actually, that's a great question and a great topic. And I was really just thinking about it because one of the things that really surprised me about Pete and why I really liked him is is how much he's absolutely engaged on all of these critical levels. I, I use a quote, I think it's from Dave Marsh's book on The Who, but it's Pete saying, you know, Dylan, how could Bob Dylan understand his song? He only wrote it. And so Pete calls himself like, 
a rock critic. And so he loves rock critics and treats them with respect. And a lot of people don't. And, and my, you know, you know, since I came up of age later, I've always was sort of felt frustrated by, say, Dylan being so opaque in his words. And I understand why. And he's got his other words that in the songs that speak for themselves. And even the Beatles sort of jokey, not giving much away. I get that. Right? It never appealed to me. And I know that some others like Joan Baez would, you know, and uh, others were were more articulate and well spoken. Jerry Garcia, I kind of didn't realize how how really he's articulating a lot of this stuff very well and very openly. But Pete is engaged. Like he literally has a column, I think, in Melody Maker uh, for a while. And uh, he's, you know, he's, people are writing in and he's, he's conversing with people and they're absolutely talking about mm-hmm. the world. And Pete's l- less po- directly political. Uh, and, you know, the famous Abby Hoffman incident is like, this is my stage. This is showbiz in a sense. You're not, you're not the guru. I am kind of thing. Right. I think that's, that's hey. not quite fair to either of them maybe, but he later, you know, regretted it and admitted like, yeah, he shouldn't Bonson have Claire being arrested for pot. No, is no, not a good thing. And, you know, have, he, he started to develop a, a more traditionally political consciousness at various times. I, I guess so. But look, I'm going to fight with you over the Woodstock Abby Hoffman coming on stage. I agree with yep. Pete Townsend completely, and I think he was completely right. Get off my stage. I'm doing a show. You don't get to layer yourself in here. And I there's a statement that he hit him with a guitar. He kicked him in the pants. He did a different thing. I think Abby Hoffman got what he deserved. Am I wrong about that? Get off my stage. No, I, I think it's a different vision of what are we doing here? And um, I certainly get the moment and the, you know, the mood. And I try to capture the mood that Pete was already pissed off. They were the only band that forced the uh, promoters to go get some money on a Sunday before they would play. And right. they criticized for that. But look, they were smart, you know. <laughs> they knew what was what was going on. Like if we don't if we don't get paid up front, we're not getting paid. Uh, and they weren't wrong to suspect that. So I don't criticize them for that. But they're there for they're not part of this flower power, the hippie generation. He feels very much astride that and very skeptical of it. And again, I think it's I'm using conservative, not even sort of in a negative way. I'm just trying to think of the word where you know he's he's suspicious of all that, any kind of utopianism. He definitely wants to engage with people, and you know the lighthouse. He has these crazy utopian visions. Can't we all just live the world of the creative life that that we create? So no. he has that side, but he definitely is <laughs> not part of. And he feels that even you know in Monterey in '67, these people are the who are coming from a different place than a lot of the LA, certainly the San Francisco people. So um, I, I you know I'm not going to argue with you. I see, you know I think Hoffman's grandstanding a little bit too, doing his own thing. But he's there, and he you know he writes this book called Woodstock Nation. And he's and he's very you know critical of the who indirectly and stuff. And so they got two different agendas. And I recently just met someone who was there with the hog farm, right? And she she was making food the whole weekend and stuff, and and she was being interviewed. And I just happened to meet her, and and you know people were saw what what is Woodstock? It's not just a rock concert, man. It's it's we're changing the world. We're creating a world. And so I I don't take sides in that one. I get both sides and certainly where Pete's coming from. And uh, 
But I, I see what, you know, Abby Hoffman is there. This is serious business. This isn't just a paycheck in a concert. Not that it was for Pete either, but they very different visions of what are we doing here in, with rock right. at this stage, you know? Um, and I, that's fascinating to me. That question is you- fascinating to me. Hey, um, look, I, I find the idea of the phrase, hope I die before I get old, so ironic because two of the who have died before they got old. And it isn't held up as anything wonderful. So let me go an absolute different direction here. I can't explain. You say this in the book, and you're absolutely right. It was it was taken directly from the Kinks. The chord progression of I can't explain was taken from the Kinks. But so what? Both were successful. Both made money. And it is my opinion, this is sort of the epicenter of the discussion of copyright and ownership. I think it's what's killing a lot of music today. It, it, what's been done has been done. And if you in any way come near another song, you need to pay money and such. And I thought that was a, when you wrote that in the book, I thought that was a great metaphor for how music is being harmed today. The copyright laws hang on to the music so long that no one can expand it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think it's fascinating, right? Like that, that's what music and culture is, right? People appropriating from each other and remixing and, um, and he's unabashed and, and anybody who's ever learned uh, guitar on their own and by listening to songs and stealing, 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 and it's homage and all of that. At the same time, right? The history of culture industries is exploitation of artists. So I'm, I, I get that, like, um, it's one thing to say I'm an artist who stole a little riff from Stravinsky or Beethoven or or uh, Jimi Hendrix or whatever, but it's another thing that corporations are doing all this. So I don't really have a, a real informed perspective on how uh, creativity should be allocated financially, especially with things like sampling and all of that. Um, but I'm, I'm sympathetic to the artist who says, what the hell? That's my song. And you're making millions off of it. You shouldn't be able to do that. Um, I'm sympathetic. You know, Zeppelin's the famous case, right? And where they stole from a lot of blues artists, but so did everybody. But also stole, you know, is it Stairway to Heaven from Spirit, right? Correct. Right. Uh, I think so. Yeah. And, you know, the courts said, no, they didn't. And, all right, I'm not a lawyer and I that's fine, but sure sounds to me like they did. And what should be you know, what should be done about that in, in retrospect? I don't know. But, you know, just going back to the creative part, I, I, that's what I really enjoyed. Like, these are a bunch of young kids. They're all 20 years old, you know, maybe 22. And they get to 25 and they're the old guys, you know, and they're all just listening to each other. And, you know, they're in competition. And um, but they're also inspired by each other. And, you know, as I mentioned, Pet Sounds, they all hear that. You know, I said, like, Sergeant Pepper, everybody said, oh, you, you know, Beatles are telling everybody you got to up your game. But Pet Sounds was the one that just blew everybody away. And Pete's in that mix. 
And, you know, he also, when we get to, he hasn't really shown that he's one of them, right? They're still, you know, they're not considered, they, they have a lot of, some cool songs. I think a lot of novelty songs. Um, I don't, to, to me, Who Sell Out doesn't become, and they also economically have had, like they just hadn't made good decisions, hadn't had good offers. So they were not doing well financially. Um, and Tommy changed all that. Yeah. Uh, which allows them to, you know, have a total different career. So, so they're making these records. They're having some hits, lots of misses, no coherent real album. Who sell out? Again, you want to say that is that's fine. Um, that's their first shot. Some people are saying, yeah, okay, these guys are, these guys have more than just the two minute pop song. Um, and so, I think Pete desperately wants that as an artist, and he's capable of it. Uh, and you know, I haven't don't even, we haven't even talked about just sort of his guitar playing. Could you imagine being Pete and seeing like they all did seeing Jimi Hendrix? And he's oh, no yeah. Hendrix, but I think he's a great. I love his guitar playing. So and, do uh, I. By the way, when you have that band with you, you don't need to do anymore. You know. Oh yeah, the, the, the lead the lead instrument and Entwistle taking off and playing the lead instrument. There you go. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Entwistle was the lead guitarist of the Who. Yeah. No question. We're into our second break to allow our affiliates time to play their commercials, but we'll be back in a minute to continue talking with Dewar McLeod about his new book, Tommy, Trauma, and Post-War Youth Culture on Rock School. You state that Pure and Easy is your favorite Pete Townsend solo song. I know it. I know it up, down, through, and under. What does Pure and Easy do that that moves you as you listen to it? So, you know, I talked about the spiritual connection, and, you know, that was really, I didn't get it. I didn't see it. But I bought Pure and Easy when that came out, you know, uh, the Pete solo album with that on it. And it touched me. And, you know, musically, it's beautiful. And I'm not enough of a musician to even sort of explain what's going on with the chords and the melodies and such. Um, but it really does encapsulate. Um, and I think Dave Marsh is the one also, I think I quote, you know, this is the greatest rock song. It is an expression of faith. And it is like, how do we capture everything in one note? You know, there yeah. once was no easy, and every artist is trying to do some version of that. And I, you know, I'm an artist adjacent kind of guy, right? I'm not a creative artist. I'm an intellectual, an academic, which can really be deadly. You know, it can destroy <laughs> the beauty of art, right? I'm right. when I'm in my class teaching rock. I want to turn the song off so we can talk critically about it. And the students are like, "Wait a second, I want to listen to this song." And I get it, right? Like the experience, but my I get turned on by the talking about it stuff and you know i think it's just a beautiful song i love his voice there um the who later did it and you know it's much keith moon on drums is better than pete playing the drums himself but i don't you know and i love roger as a singer and all of this and as a human being and all this but i think pete just captures like what he's trying to do in his whole life and so the spirituality is and i talk about his his bouts with sobriety and you know his addiction and recovery and all of this and he's trying for the impossible which is transcendence yeah right? and that's what mommy's about and then you know that moment of once was a note pure and easy it's the one chord the one note and um 
you know, it's not unique to him. And I feel like that's as close to capturing what that spirit's all about. I, I agree. I think Townsend was constantly reaching inside of the song Hallelujah. It says that David played a chord and it pleased the Lord. And nobody yeah, knows yeah, what yeah. that chord is. And I think that's what Townsend went after. What I always have loved about him is whether it be Rough Boys or Pure and Easy or Give Blood or my favorite, Slit Skirts, there is a brutal honesty about him that every human being can see inside of themselves. And although Tommy, I believe, was just a giant metaphor, I know there's a thought process that it was biographical to Keith Moon or somebody Keith Moon knew. I think Townsend lives in this metaphorical world that I think even he knows he'll never reach. Yeah, and it's this wrestling with that. So, so it starts. Tommy really starts with amazing journey, and and I dig into how when he's constructing this. Tommy at first is sort of born uh, in the first creation is born this way, and I you know I really frame it as Pete trying to overcome his trauma, re- reject his trauma. And I think there's a lot of navigation through that that is doesn't really work, you know? Like, so then Tommy has this event happen, which puts him into this sort of autistic state. Um, and I, I think Pete really wants, he talks about him getting abused. And he's like, with his first accounts and his first notes and such. And he's really like, you know, but he doesn't feel anything. So it's all fine because he's got pure, the pure essence of life, you know, the no pure and easy and i'm like what what are you what are you trying to do here you're really trying to have a kid get molested and then be fine right to me it's him it's his own journey how can i and then so when i write to him he's like look i dealt with that i don't want to deal with it anymore you know and i respect that i understand that he does it finally right tommy does it in a way but most of the discourse around tommy really goes to the second part and so when you're like we open up and you're telling me that Tommy is just a hustler as a kid, right? He's he's fooling everybody. And my sympathy sympathies are with that kid who's been abused, given the impossible command, don't talk. Don't talk about this. What's the only way to respond to that? Don't talk about anything. Yeah. So I see Pete struggling with all of that. And you know, nobody has to tell you when you're abused as a child, don't talk. The world will tell you that. And uh, nobody wants to hear it. And so he talks about this, you know, and he has to have Keith and John Entwistle do the abuser roles. He can't even write those songs because he can't get there. Like he, he's not ready. And this is in 60, you know, 67, 68, 69 that he's writing this stuff. And then what is it? 30 years later or so or more that he, he's able to write his own story and reveal it. And, um, you know, and he, you know, to me, it's still alive. So that's where I go into, and he's trying to find transcendence. He talks about the spiritual shortcut, you know, and um, he's trying to find that transcendence to achieve no pain, but he can't do it. So he writes as if, like, as I say, the original uh, character of Tommy is just born away. Well, I got to be honest, I'm glad I had a tape recorder on you for the hour that we spent together. Uh, I'm speaking with Dewar McLeod and his book, and it is absolutely worth every penny. Tommy Trauma 
and post-war youth culture. You say you don't want to sit down with Pete Townsend for an hour, but I'll tell you what, I could sit down for a few hours with you. I think we could kill an entire bottle together. And oh, by the way, I'll bet the audience will hear you again right around Christmas. Aren't you doing some Christmas stuff? I'm doing uh, my next book is on Christmas movies and uh, my band has Christmas has a Christmas album. And and so uh, we'll have lots to talk about. Ecstatic. I think it's going to be wonderful. So, Dewar McLeod, how are things in New Jersey? I hope they're great. New Jersey is the center of the world, man. Great place to be. Loving it. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, thank you for spending an hour with me. Your book is wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Great. Thanks for having me.